prayer. That is our topic this morning, prayer. Why do we do it? Why should we do it? What happens when we pray? But can I be honest with you all right from the start? I really struggle to have a disciplined, intentional prayer life. It's always something that I've wanted to be good at. Frankly, it's something that pastors should be good at, one might think. But it's never something that has come easy to me. I'll try to adopt a regular practice for prayer, and I'll keep it up until things get busy and I get stressed, which is admittedly ironic because in those times it's when you need prayer the most, but I said I was going to be honest. But I want to be honest from the start because it's easy for pastors to talk about prayer and for Christians to talk about prayer as if it's the most natural thing in the world and that should come so easy to us. I've heard those sermons, and it's made me feel even worse that I couldn't keep up a daily prayer discipline, like I was the only one in the world who was bad at this. The whole goal of this sermon series, Why Church, and the whole goal of this sermon is to come at things we do in church today prayer from different angles so that you can try them again in a new light. And if you've ever struggled with prayer, well, the pastor, the one giving the sermon, is right there with you. And if at the end of this sermon you want to try and adopt a daily prayer routine, I'll be right there with you too, and we can talk about how it works out. Now, normally I begin sermons with a cute anecdote about my life as a way of getting into the topic, easing us in, if you will. But today, I've clearly admitted that I have no cute anecdote that could be helpful or enlightening. So how about we just get right to Scripture? It's a good place to start. Our Scripture comes from 2 Chronicles. We were in 1 Chronicles last week. It was such a good book, it deserved a sequel. And we were talking about David's recapture of the Ark of the Covenant. That was the thing that burned off the Nazis' faces. I'm going to keep making that joke until you all run me out of here. So David recaptures the ark, which housed the tablets of the Ten Commandments, and was for Israel the very presence of God, and places it in a tent, a new tabernacle. The tabernacle was what housed the Ark of the Covenant as the Israelites moved throughout the wilderness in the time of Moses. So David makes a new tabernacle. But then David tells God that David feels really bad that David gets to live in this immaculate, opulent palace. And God lives in a tent. So David says, I will build God a new house, a better house. But God gets upset at that and tells David that if God wanted a better house, God would take care of it himself. He didn't like David being so presumptuous. So God says that God will in fact get a new house, but it won't be David that builds it. It will be David's son. Fast forward a bunch of chapters, and Solomon, David's son and successor, is king. And Solomon does in fact build God a new amazing house called the temple. Our scripture this morning is part of the prayer of blessing that Solomon prays over the temple 
as he is finishing construction and dedicating it to God and to the people. Second Chronicles 6, which is printed in your lifeline, displayed on the screen behind me. And if you need a Bible and don't have a Bible, we give them away for free every week out at our welcome area. Second Chronicles 6 says, But will God really dwell on earth with humans? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet, Lord, my God, give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence. May your eyes be open toward this temple, day and night, this place of which you said you would put your name there. May you hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. When Solomon dedicates and prays over the temple, he asks God for two things. The first would be that God's presence would be found within the temple, that it would be a special place where the people could meet and commune with God. The second is related. Solomon prays to God that God would hear the prayers of the people prayed within the temple. This second aspect I want to put on hold for a moment until we get to our second piece of Scripture today. But I do want to touch on the first thing that Solomon prays for because I think it, it highlights precisely what prayer is and what happens when we pray. Simply put, prayer and meditation are stepping into the spirit and presence of God. It's tapping into the being of God. When we pray, we lift up our hearts and minds to God, hoping to be healed and strengthened by God's presence. That's what Solomon wanted for the temple. He wanted it to be a place where people could come and truly experience the presence of God, where the people could stand in the presence of God, where the people could be healed by the presence of God. We are given that opportunity when we go to God in prayer and meditation. Now, some of you might have heard all of this before. Some of you might have heard this. Some of you might want to believe it, but just aren't sure if that's really the case with prayer. How do we know that something is happening? How do we know we're not just sitting there rattling off a laundry list of things to no one in particular? How do we know it's not just a waste of time? Tanya Lerman did a study where she asked all sorts of people from all types of backgrounds, Christians, religious non-Christians, atheists, and agnostics, to pray every day over a period of six weeks. Remarkably, miraculously, almost all of the participants of the study, including those who didn't believe that God existed, reported feeling closer to God as a result of the process. Committing to a regular, repeated, intentional prayer discipline for an extended period of time is key to, ex to a real and intimate experience of the presence of God. So if you've tried prayer and it's never worked for you, my question is, how long did you try it for? Did you give it a sustained, repeated, regular attempt? Now for the record, that question is as much addressed to me as it is to anyone else. Sometimes I preach to myself. Additionally, prayer is one of the most beneficial things you can do for your brain. 
there are three activities that are universally recognized as incredibly neurologically beneficial. Reading, physical exercise, and prayer and meditation. So when I talk about the benefits of prayer on your brain, your mental health, and your daily life, we are talking about something that science recognizes is right up there with reading and physical exercise. And the benefits of those two activities have been drilled into us from day one. And I don't mean that this is proven among scientists who are Christians. Mike McCarg says, everyone from Richard Rohr, a Christian, to Richard Dawkins, an atheist, gives meditation a thumbs up. How is this possible? And how can you make it work for you? To start out, we're going to be talking about what happens if you were to pray for 15 minutes a day, six days a week, for six weeks. During that time, your anterior cingular cortex will begin to get thicker and healthier, like a muscle that you're exercising. Your anterior cingular cortex is a pretty important part of your brain because it sits in the threshold between your limbic system, which is lovingly referred to as your rodent brain, and your neocortex, which is the most human part of your brain. This anterior cingular cortex is responsible for compassion and empathy. When that gets healthier, you begin to respond to situations with greater compassion, more empathy, you don't rush to judgment, and you consider different options more readily. Now additionally, you will see an improvement in focus, agency, and concentration as your prefrontal cortex grows stronger. All of this combines so that the benefits you'll see in 15 minutes of prayer a day, six days a week for six weeks, are improved overall mental health, decreased blood pressure, and reduced stress. Prayer has also been shown to be therapeutic for people suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's. Pretty amazing, am I right? Now let's say that that works. You give it a try, it works great for you. You improve mental health. Your rodent brain is not working as much. Or let's say you're already there praying 15 minutes a day, six days a week. And you think, hey, if 15 minutes does this much for me, could more prayer benefit me more? And the answer is, Yes, not a trick question. Let's say you, you expand your practice to 30 minutes a day, six days a week, and you're willing to try out some more complex meditative prayer practices like centering prayer or Lectio Divina. You will supercharge those neurological effects. At this point in the science, we begin to see a measurable effect on depression and overall mood. Because of the healthy changes you are making to your brain, it will become harder for you to get angry, which if we have to put up with this Redskins defense for another 14 weeks, we desperately need. Now, while it would be good for business to say that this is just the result of Christian prayer, all forms of meditation help. All people of all belief systems receive these neurological benefits from all types of meditation. 
But there is a neurological phenomenon unique to religious meditation. There is a part of your brain called the parietal lobe, which is responsible for the recognition of physical space. When masters of prayer are deep in their practice and we scan their brains, we can see that the parietal lobe goes dark. There's a suppression of activity in that area of the brain. So literally what is happening, and we see this in brain scans, is that they are leaving the physical space they are in. They are losing recognition of physical space. If you've ever prayed and felt this experience of transcendence, prayer practice makes that possible. And we can document it with science. So we arrive back at where we started. If you want to regularly experience the presence of God, if you want to regularly experience transcendence, prayer is the best way to make that happen. But that's not the only thing that happens when we pray. There are two other dimensions of prayer that are covered in the second piece of Scripture for us today. After Solomon builds the temple and says his prayer of dedication, God answers Solomon. And this is what God has to say. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple of sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully as David your father did and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father when I said you shall never fail to have a successor to rule over Israel. There are two things that this passage says about prayer. The first is how it forms us. The passage says that God has chosen places to hear our prayers, and that in times of tragedy, when there's a drought or famine, in times of illness, if we respond with humility and turn to God, things will change. What that tells me is that first and foremost, prayer causes us to be a different kind of person. What is your normal response to stress or tragedy? Oftentimes for me, I go insular. I go it on my own. I want to get inside my head and hype myself up so I can go all lone ranger and be my own savior. My inclination is not to humble myself and to ask for help. Prayer, humbling ourselves before God in times of tragedy, in times of prosperity, and in times in between, subtly forces us to be a different kind of person. It forces us to be the kind of person that says, I can't do it, and that's okay. 
It forces us to be the kind of person that says, I need a savior and I can't be that for myself. It forces us to be the kind of person that says, I need help. I need help from others. I need help from God. It forces us to not take full credit for our successes, to acknowledge all of the help and benefits that we've been given along the way. And if we have asked for help and if we have been given it, if we acknowledge the help that we have been given, if we know that we rely on God and on other people, then we are more likely to help others when asked. Prayer changes us to be humble, thankful, and generous. Lastly, Scripture tells us the theological implications of prayer. God says that if we humble ourselves and call out to God, God will bring rain to a barren land. God will bring healing to plague. God will act. God will intervene in our lives. Theologically, prayer can mean everything for us as it unleashes the life-giving, miraculous power of God into our world. When you pray, you are inviting the creative power that made the universe and continues to sustain the universe to enter into space and time. You are inviting God to act in your life and in the lives of those you care most about. Now, obviously, if you've had any experience with prayer, you know that God doesn't always give us exactly what we ask for which leads to questions about whether or not prayer is powerful or whether or not God is working, and why would God grant this request and not others? And those are real, important questions about prayer that get to the heart about what we think of God and prayer and ourselves. Unfortunately, we don't have enough time to cover those questions this morning. That's such a cop-out. But I didn't want to talk about prayer and the power of prayer and what prayer can do without at least acknowledging that there are times when our prayers seemingly go unanswered. But instead, what I want to end on is with some practical steps on how you can start a daily prayer discipline. If you've heard about the neurological benefits and the spiritual benefit benefits and want to give it a try, what would you do? First, you need to find a regular time of the day that will work for you. Remember, these practices need to be regular and repeated over a period of time before you'll really start to experience the benefits and encounters with God. The next step is finding a way to pray that is comfortable for you. Maybe you put together a list of people you want to pray for. Maybe you want to start with the prescribed method of praying like Acts, the Acts prayer. Acts stands for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. We begin by praising God, adoration. We tell God the ways that we have failed, confession. We thank God for the blessings in our lives, thanksgiving. And we ask requests of God, supplication. Interestingly enough, this prayer is really formational because it teaches us to go to God first in praise and thanksgiving before we get around to asking God for things. Oftentimes, I find myself demanding things of, from God like I am entitled to them. But this method of prayer reforms us and reforms me as a person who approaches God in humility, naming how great God is and how unfaithful I am before we get to my laundry list of requests. From there, there are other resources you can use if you want to take your practice to another level. There's a great book called A Bead and a Prayer, that's about Protestant prayer beads. 
I find holding something in my hand to be helpful uh, and having some sort of order to my prayer to be helpful because my mind tends to wander. So if I have holding something and if I know what I need to be doing, it helps keep me focused because I'm a wanderer. Y'all have noticed that from my sermons. They wander. Having uh, having something in my hand as I wander back uh, to call me back to prayer and having an order keep my mind focused. I already said that. But the big thing is to try it. In whatever ways you find comfortable for yourself, make time to regularly enter into the spirit and presence of God and see if disciplined prayer wasn't precisely the thing that your soul was needing. I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon that being disciplined in prayer is something that I have struggled with. Well, I'm going to try it. 15 minutes a day, six days a week for the next six weeks. I welcome any of you to try it with me, and we can see what happens when we go to God in regular prayer. Let us pray. God, we need your presence. We need your presence in our lives. We need your presence in our hearts. We need your presence in our community and in our churches and in our family and in our nation and in our world. We need your presence, God. So help us. Remind us to use the tools that you've already given us to tap into your presence, to unleash your presence. Call us to prayer, God. Call us to prayer so that we can encounter you daily. So that our souls can be in touch with your grace and your love. And so that we can be transformed day by day as we step into your presence. Call us to prayer, God. And meet us there. Meet us in those moments when we fall on our knees to you in desperation. Meet us in those moments of ultimate triumph when we just shout out thank you. And meet us in all the moments in between when we need your presence so much more than we could ever truly know. Call us to prayer, God, because we need you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.